do um, a well-known outline to begin with adoring God for who he is, confessing our sins, thirdly, asking for his help, and lastly, thanking him for who he is. So would you join me this morning, God, in prayer? We come before you, God, because you are great. You are higher than all others. There is none like you. The, the Bible tells us that over and over again in a hundred ways. And God is your people. We've experienced that in dozens and maybe over the course of our lives, hundreds of ways. Your, your supremacy, your greatness, your love, your power, the fact that you alone are, are eminently worthy of receiving worship and praise your beauty and your greatness transcend who we are and so often what we see. And God, we just simply acknowledge you for being as great as you are. Lord, we realize with some irony that there are, are those in the world um, who look at your greatness as a reason to inflict harm and a justification to inflict harm on other people. But God, we acknowledge your greatness and the fact that you took harm on yourself to take it away from us. And so our acknowledgement of your greatness leads us to humility, it leads us to joy, and it leads us to delight in who you are. And Father God, so often I confess that your greatness is not the most beautiful thing to me. And we love to say in our church that your, the goal of life is to see your infinite worth is ultimately beautiful, that, that your worth would be the most amazing thing in our lives. Can we confess that that is not true? many times. We believe it, we acknowledge it, but we don't often experience that. Sometimes, sometimes the world is too big for us, uh, too attractive for us. We acknowledge as your people that we spend a lot of our time and energy chasing things that are perhaps not without value, but they certainly do not have eternal value. They don't have your value, and yet they consume our thinking. Other times, Perhaps, Father God, it's, it's fear. Fear of, of man overwhelms us and prevents us maybe from pursuing you or speaking of you as we ought. Father, before we go any further down that road of, of guilt or shame, we simply want to acknowledge our inability to see you for who you are as sin and confess it as such. Knowing full well that you've told us if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us from our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we come before you right now, confessing our sin as your people and asking that you would cleanse us from the unrighteousness of other idols, other things that so often consume our hearts and our minds rather than you. God, rid us of them that we may see you clearly for who you are and be forever changed as a result. And so, Father God, now having confessed that sin, we ask you um, to, to lift us up, um, to, to overwhelm us, even this morning, before we leave this building with your grace and with your truth. Father, with every person here, so many faces, each representing a different life, a different story, a different past 24 hours, and yet we're coming from so many different places, and we've all come to the same place as one body to acknowledge your greatness. So, God, I pray that you would lift us up. We're where men and women are, are burdened with um, guilt and with shame, where we are nailed to the floor by grief, feeling like we will never get beyond it. God, I pray that you would meet us this morning with a vision of how big you are, how awesome you are, how deeply you love us. And I, I pray, Father God, that you would lift us up to see you more clearly, thanking you all the while for the fact that you are a God of salvation. 
Lord, if you reveal nothing else in this book of Exodus, you reveal that you are a God who seeks to save his people. You come after us when we don't deserve you. You you did not wait until we came to you, but you came for us. You came for your people in ancient times. You still come for your people in modern times. And I thank you for being one who comes after us, who loves us. I pray this morning, Father God, that you would overwhelm every man and woman in this room with a deeper vision of your truth and your grace such that we do not go through the motions of a church service, those of us that are used to doing this, or perhaps those that may be among us who aren't used to what we're doing and it maybe all seems new. God, I pray that we would not experience something that is just rote or mechanical or observed from a distance, but God, would you draw our hearts into your word as it is sung, as it is preached. Give us hearts to listen, ears as you say in your word to hear, that we would be transformed by a vision of your awesome beauty, your love for us, in a way that would help us to live for you as never before. Use us, Father God, we pray, as a church, to lead many dozens and hundreds of people in our community to faith in Christ over these next few years. We pray this for our good and for your eternal glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And I want to ask Roger to come on up here. He's going to read the passage of Scripture that we're going to be studying here together in just a moment. We're reading Exodus 7, verses 1 through 13. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the word of God to us. Thanks, Roger. Morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Jordan. I'm on this staff team here, and I just have the privilege to be able to open God's Word uh, with you this morning and be able to just illuminate it and see what God's doing in the midst of Scripture. We have a ton of things to walk through today. Uh, uh, we're going to extend our time to about 1.15. Are you guys good with that? 
Hey, we got some, got some takers over here on this side of the room. Oh. So we are in this series, we're walking through, we're journeying through the book of Exodus. Again, it's a well-known story that we're starting to unpack that is actually um, the center of the Jewish faith. God used Israel's journey to re-engage with them as they've been enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. Um, God heard their cries his chosen nation, his chosen people, he has chosen to rescue them. And more than rescue them, God has given them, God is going to give them more than they ever asked for. And throughout this journey, what we're going to see is a pseudo Eden experience. I mean, if you're familiar with scripture, with scripture, you know Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where Adam and Eve walked in the Garden of Eden. They had relationship and they had fellowship with God. Before sin entered in and broken it, it was perfect and it was good. I mean, I call this a pseudo experience because what we're seeing here is now that Israel has been enslaved in Egypt for so long, God is going to be re-engaging with them, establishing relationship with them. A God in heaven who has created it all is going to come down with them throughout this entire journey, walk with them in a very tangible, in a tangible way, rescue them, and walk with them. The story isn't just central for the Jewish faith. It's actually the center of the gospel. It has a gospel themed all throughout it, and it points us right to Jesus. We're going to be starting in Exodus chapter 7, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there. You saw it on the screens. That's where we're going to begin. We have a large chunk of passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking through, so we're going to highlight some of these things and see exactly what God is doing. As you guys are turning there, um, got a question for you. What was middle school like for you? I can tell by your Snickers. Some of you loved it. A couple of you loved it. It may have been hard for others of us in this room. It's just kind of known, like growing up in the youth ministry world, being in youth ministry for 20 years, and also uh, having teenagers my, myself, uh, having walked through middle school myself, middle school can be a really difficult time, you know? So... Um, Think about it, right? So you have all of these students who are going to this one school, and they've come from at least two elementary schools, if not three or four, that are now all coming to one location. So all of this, these friends that you've established in elementary are now being poured into this melting pot, and there becomes relational drama, right? If that's not enough, your body's going through chemical changes, physical changes, Nothing on the inside makes sense anymore, and you're trying to figure yourself out, and you have all these relationship problems that could potentially be going on around you. If that's not enough, those girls or those boys that you hated in elementary school all of a sudden become cute, and you're like, what in the world is happening inside of me? I don't know what to do with this information. Okay, you put all of this in one pot, right? You put puberty, you put friend drama, you put new crushes, and then you put that in and you stir it. What do you get? You get a difficult middle school experience. <laughs> I witnessed my first fight in middle school. Um, shocker, right? 
all this drama that's being ensued inside of people and the things that they're feeling, they don't know what to do with it. I remember sitting in the cafeteria with my, with my friends one day. So I went to a school in Texas and um, we all had one lunch. And so all of us were together in one lunch. That was bad administrative advice, but they, they did. They put us all in one lunch. And we're sitting at the table, we're minding our own business. All, and then all of a sudden, students just start screaming, ah! and they start running. I knew we weren't in danger because it wasn't one of those like chaos screams, like people, people scatter. It was like an excitement scream, and they were all going in one direction. If you've ever witnessed a, a fight at school or a middle school fight in particular, you know that people love to watch, right? Something's going on, then the people flood, and there's 100, 200 people who are trying to be able to get to see what's going on, and, and I work my way over there, and there's just these two guys. Come on, man. Come on, man. Come on, man. I'm like, it's not a fight. Um, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. Girls fight in middle school a lot better than boys do. Uh, you know, <laughs> pulling hair, scratching. There's actually punches thrown. Okay, we're not, it's not about the punches being thrown. But um, how old were you when you first witnessed your first fight? Or maybe you were in your first fight. We're all sinners. It's okay to admit that we let anger get the best of us at times, right? In today's text, we're going to see God is actually picking a fight. So much different than our middle school fights that we witness and we experience that are real centered on all of that drama that's going on in our lives. That's very self-centered and self-focused. God is going to be actually picking a fight with uh, a nation, with the Egyptians, and he's going to be doing something very particular inside of this moment. What we're going to see inside this series is the plagues of Egypt, and if you're familiar with the story, you know where we're going with all of this. Here's our main point. God is declaring who he is to Pharaoh, to Israel, and to the world around him. That is why he is picking this fight, because he wants his name to be known. He wants his um, reputation to be known. And it hasn't been known all over the world. So he's starting with his chosen people and doing something extremely spectacular inside of this story. We're calling this part one because we're going to be spending three weeks walking through these plagues together. We're going to be seeing the first six plagues today as we, as we journey with Israel today. Tomorrow, or tomorrow, you can come back tomorrow if you want. No one might be here. But um, Next week, when you come back, we're going to go through plagues uh, seven, eight, and nine. Then we're going to finish up week three talking about the tenth and final plague. But God is going to be declaring who he is in the midst of all this. What God is doing is so intentional. And it's my goal today to be able to show us how intentional God is in the way that he is picking this fight, in the way that he wants to declare himself king over the entire world. And actually, I get excited about it because I saw some things as I was digging this week that make me go, oh my gosh, God, you are bigger than even the box I put you in and what you're doing inside of this text. Obviously, we know Pharaoh needs to see God as king because he sees himself and his magicians and his servants as king and the ruling authorities probably all over the known world. He probably thought he was greater than everyone else. <laughs> Israel needed to see that Yahweh God is king 
because they've been living as slaves for 400 years underneath this regime. Though they have upheld Yahweh God as their God, as their king, 400 years is a long time. I mean, how long have we been a nation here in the USA? How much has the world changed in the amount of years that we've been a known nation? How much is our worldview shaped by the time that we've been a nation together here in the Western world? They've been enslaved longer than we've ever been known as the United States of America. Their worldview is being shaped by what they're seeing going on in Egypt. They need to see God. They need to see Yahweh as king. In the world, we know the world's noticing. We know the world's watching. You can jump to the next, uh, to the book after Deuteronomy and go into Joshua, which makes Israel, it, it depicts Israel going into the promised land. We know what happens in the battle of Jericho, right? The walls are marching around, right? Before we ever get to the battle of Jericho, there are spies sent in and they meet this, this lady named Rahab. And Rahab tells them in Joshua chapter two, um, tells these spies, hey, our city is fearful of you, Israelites, because we knew what your God did in Egypt. They were afraid. The world's watching. The world is going to know that Yahweh is king. That's what we're going to see. Again, today's part one of three. We just get to see it time and time again for the next few weeks as we get together. There's something I want us to get and see as we move forward. So this map of Egypt, right? So uh, maybe you might not be able to see it, but um, Cairo is right underneath that red X. Cairo is like the capital. That's where Pharaoh resided, right? Goshen, we're going to see in the text, is where Israel was. Israel was encamped. Um, uh, don't quote me on this, but around 2.5 million people were enslaved in Egypt in Goshen, and that's where they, they resided, just north of Cairo. And as we talk, I just want you to understand what's going on there. So God is declaring who he is to Pharaoh, to Israel, and to the rest of the world around them. As we walk through the story, I want us to notice um, what I want us to notice is that God is not allowing himself to be put in a nice, neat box that we can define so clearly, right? He is so much bigger and so much more powerful than anything we could ever wrap our minds around. He is going to intentionally prove who he is to all three of these categories, so let's just start off and see in Exodus chapter 7 what um, was read a few minutes ago by Roger. But let's look at this again and just highlight a few of these things. Exodus chapter 7, these, these first two verses. Let's see this. The Lord said to Moses, so we got the burning bush story. We, we've walked through that. We know Moses' experience and journey and interactions with God and the difficulties, but the joys that come from that. And now he is marching towards Pharaoh. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak and I, uh, all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of the land. God is making Moses like God. 
really, let's not read into that too much. What he is doing is God is going to be using Moses. Moses is going to um, be God in the sense of miracles are going to be coming from the direction of Moses. Aaron is going to be the prophet, the one acting out, going to be doing this. And Pharaoh is going to see Yahweh through what Moses is doing here. Okay, we see that. Now let's look at what's going on. Verse 3, God says to Moses in preparations, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh, when I stretch out my hands against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded. Notice, as we saw previously, Moses questioned God. There is no more questioning because he gets who God is. So verse 6, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded. Now Moses was 88, Aaron, I'm sorry, 80, and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Okay, let's just acknowledge something. When we read that text, there are some questions that pop up. God hardening Pharaoh's heart. The natural questions that we tend to ask is, why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? How does God harden Pharaoh's heart? What does this mean for us today? How does this speak into what we know as free will? If God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, then what is his responsibility inside the actions? Can God actually hold him accountable if God is the one that's hardening his heart? All fantastic questions and actually I think should be asked. I think good systematic theology allows us to look throughout Scripture to be able to come up and start answering some of these really big questions. Unfortunately, that's not what the text is asking us to ask. It's not leading us to see the how. What God wants us to see is why. Why is God doing this? And verse 5 makes that very clear to us. Why is God hardening Pharaoh's heart? so that the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, that I am Yahweh, and I will stretch out my hand against them, and they will know that I am king, and there is no other. That is exactly what God is doing. So, we get the first little example. Aaron and Moses go before Pharaoh. This isn't even the first plague yet, the whole staff thing. Notice who's in the characters inside this story. We got Pharaoh, we got Moses, we got the magicians, we got the staff turning into a serpent, which is starting to say, God is here, the magicians replicate, but what happens at the end of that story, which I think is going to be significant in what God is saying here, what he's revealing to us, is that Moses's or Aaron's staff is the one who swallowed up the magicians. And then we dive right on in to the first plague. I want to change gears a little bit. Um, sorry, I don't want to change gears yet. I'm getting way ahead of myself. Let's do this first. Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? If that's what God 
is answering, then we need to see him inside this text. He is declaring through all 10 of these plagues, he is declaring that I am the Lord, and more importantly, there is no other. Did you know that every single plague that he sends actually fights an Egyptian god? It's directed at an Egyptian god. God has the ability to do his thing in one plague. He could do one thing and Pharaoh's heart will be changed and the people will be sent off into the wilderness and they will be able to do their thing and we can move on in the book of Exodus. But God saw it fit to fight 10 different Egyptian gods to say, I am the Lord and there is no other. Unfortunately, we don't have time to, to dive into every single, uh, every single one of those, those plagues and how they fight a different God. I actually sent to our community life group leaders a little document that, that shows which God was being fought under every single plague. You can talk about it inside your community life groups. But just to kind of see this point, um, let's look at the, some of the, the, the details in the second plague, or the second plague of, of, of frogs coming out, you know, just giving us a glimpse into this. Some of the details shown in that story is that um, is that Aaron was to stretch out his staff over the rivers, the canals, and over all the pools. And the frogs were going to come out. He was commanding the frogs to come out. And what we know about this god, Hecht, she was the goddess of fertility, of water, of renewal. And she was shaped as a frog. Interesting. Coincidental? I think not. Something else that we see, uh, the, the last one we'll just take a glimpse into, is the third plague. The third plague was um, God sending gnats all over the earth. But what Aaron did was he took his staff and he slapped it on the dust of the ground, and the dust of the ground turned into gnats as they went all throughout the land. We'll get into that in a minute. But what we see is that there's an uh, Egyptian god named Geb who was the god over the dust of the earth. So the details of him slapping the dust of the earth and the dust being controlled by God is saying, I am bigger and stronger. We could go through all 10 of them and they're all very intentional with how Yahweh is fighting the Egyptian gods. But that's not the main point I want us to see today. It is a point. It is a point that we need to know that Yahweh says, I am the Lord and there are no others. Now, now let's change gears a little bit. What I want us to see is some, something else intentional that has happened inside of these plagues. As I was studying this week, what I saw was there are actually three patterns that come out of the first nine plagues that, again, I'm going to argue are very intentional in what God is doing to accomplish his purpose and what he's declaring to everyone around him. So let's just take a glance at, at all three of these. So if you have your Bibles, look at the first plague, the second plague, and the third plague. Notice that the first plague is long, the second plague is long, and the third plague is short. Now it's not about the, third, the length of the third plague, it's what is happening in the third plague. First and second plague, God is warning Pharaoh, let my people go, or this thing is going to happen. Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to do it, and then the plague comes. And then in number three, God doesn't warn Pharaoh, the plague just happens. That was weird. And then we get to the fourth, fifth, and sixth plague, same pattern happens. 
The Lord is warning Pharaoh. The Lord is warning Pharaoh. Sixth plague. The plague just happens. No warning. Now, when you see things repeat in Scripture, there's probably intentionality. We can say, question mark, weird. What are you doing here, God? When it happens a third time, you're like, okay, God, show me what you're doing because it just happens. This isn't happenstance. So we see the seventh plague and the eighth plague. The Lord warns. Pharaoh rejects. And then the plague happens. And then the ninth plague Darkness comes with no warning whatsoever. So, what is God doing in these patterns? What is God declaring? What is He saying to Pharaoh, to the nation of Israel, to the world around them? He's saying something very intentional. What I want to see in these first three plagues is, is this God is saying, I am more powerful than any other person, any other God, any other being. I am stronger and I'm more powerful. I just want to make note of these first three plagues and just skim through them. The first one we're familiar with, the Nile turning into blood. Pharaoh is in the water. Moses goes out and stands on the shore and says, Yahweh's going to turn the Nile into blood. Then he does that very thing. But what happens next, I think, is key. Let's Let's look at verse 8. So chapter 8, verse 7. Uh, nope, sorry, that's the second plague. I'm one ahead. Uh, 7, verse 22. Chapter 7, verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The magicians replicated what Moses just did. Okay, let's move on to the second one. We know the second plague, he, plague he, Moses goes away, he comes back, he warns him, let my people go or frogs are going to come from every river, every canal, every pool. Pharaoh says, no, I'm not letting your people go. And we know that frogs filled people's houses, their beds, their bedrooms, their kitchens, they were everywhere, all over the land. Let's look at eight, chapter 8, verse 7. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up all over the land. They replicated. But there's an addition to this story. They couldn't get rid of the frogs. They replicated, but the frogs remained. So what is... Pharaoh do, goes back to Moses and says, Moses, pray to your God that he would take away the frogs. God did. God is starting to show I'm greater than these magicians. Number three. They go away. Frogs are gone. They're still enslaved. They come back. And then we're just jumped into the story. Aaron struck the dust of the earth and the dust became gnats and covered every man and beast. Let's look at chapter 8, verse 18 and 19. Magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats, so there were gnats all over every man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is huge actually. The magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them. Just as the Lord has said, pattern one, I am more powerful than your magicians. 
yeah, your magicians can replicate. Where does that power come from? We don't know. But we do know this is not a battle between Moses and Pharaoh. And we also know this is not a battle between um, God and Pharaoh. Yes, that's true. But ultimately, we know this is about God against any other principalities in the world, that he is the king over all of it. So no matter where these secret arts come from, God is king. These magicians leave until we get to the sixth plague, but let's not jump ahead too much. Okay, let's look at the second pattern. God is going to say something different, but just as powerful within these, uh, these three plagues. What I want us to see is that he's going to say, I Yahweh will protect my children, but those who oppose me, they will not be able to stand. We see something very intentional going on in here. I'm not sure. I don't think we fully know if Israel was protected from the first three plagues. Did they experience gnats and frogs? I think there's an argument that they did not. But even if they did, that, that, that's not the point. Because God is going to be very explicit here in what he is saying and doing in Pharaoh on these next this next pattern, right? So let's look at the fourth plague. We know with the fourth plague that um, they met Pharaoh again by the water and they warned him that a plague of flies would come up all over the land if Pharaoh would not let his people go. <laughs> but look at 8.22. As he's declaring this, he adds an additional thing to them. All right, he said, Moses says an additional thing. Sorry, I keep getting, Aaron says an additional thing to Pharaoh. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen. Remember who's in Goshen? Israel, God's chosen people, his adopted children. On that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, that there will be no swarm of flies, and that you will know that I am the Lord in the midst of all the earth. Not only can I do these plagues, I can tell you where it's going to happen and where it's not going to happen. But it's not about me dividing a line. It's actually about me protecting my children. You will know that I am the Lord. The flies come. Israel does not experience the flies. Fifth plague. They went to Pharaoh and they warned him one more time. If you do not let my people go, your livestock will be killed. Cows, horses, donkeys, camels, sheep, goats, all of them will die. Chapter 9, verse 4. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing in all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. <laughs> Another great addition that I think is super intentional. If we continue reading, verse 7, then Pharaoh, super curious, plagues came, everyone's livestock died. God said he was going to do this. I'm just going to check to see if their livestock is still. Is God, did he follow through on his promise? And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. God is highlighting something in these three plagues that's so important for us to see that God is sovereign over all of creation. He could do whatever he wants, but more importantly, he is protecting his children. But what we're about to see in the sixth plague, the one we don't get the warning on, is that those who oppose him will not be able to stand. Plague number six, Moses goes into the kiln, 
grasps some soot, stands before Pharaoh, throws the soot into the air, and as the soot blows, everyone gets boils. The magicians show back up. They're not trying this, but there's something really intentional what the scriptures say about these magicians. Look at verse 11. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not listen, just as the Lord spoken. He didn't say that magicians got boils and they couldn't stop itching and they were irritated and they were so angry that they had these boils. No, no. Scripture says they could not stand in Moses' presence. Do you remember chapter 7, verse 1? Who is Moses here? God is making Moses like God. The magicians could not stand in the presence of God. I will protect my children, but those who oppose me, they will not be able to stand. We'll finish the patterns next week as we get into the next sections to see you got something, doing something very intentional, your homework this week. Can you go and find that intentionality with those three plagues? Come back and see if we can compare notes together, right? Yahweh is protecting his children, but those who oppose him will not stand. We have the privilege of standing on another side of history. We know what God was doing in Egypt in his chosen nation as it played out and they ended up in the promised land and as they continued to fail and as they go through kings and as they go through prophets and they end in this silent period as we end the Old Testament and then we get to the New Testament and something dramatically changes, Jesus enters into the scene. All of these things that God is doing, the promises he is giving, is not just giving them to Pharaoh, but he's giving it to all the world and what he is doing as he is seeking to be in relationship with and rescue and redeem his children. Who are his children? We know through Christ that we are the children of God. Anyone who has surrendered our lives to Christ, we are his adopted children. Ephesians 1 makes it super clear to us that's exactly who we are. We see this ultimate reality fulfilled in Christ. Christ did not come to abolish the law, Matthew 5 tells us, but came to fulfill the law. (laughs) Let's just look. John You can just listen or you can follow along with me, but John, in three different places, I want us to to just see how this connects about Jesus being the answer to the promises of God saying who he is. So John chapter 1, starting in verse 1 through 5, and we'll jump down to verse 12 because it continues that thought. It says, in the beginning was the Word, capital W. In the beginning was Jesus And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things that were made through him, without him, uh, was not anything made, sorry, that was a, a confusing verse. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was the life, and 
The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This stuff in Egypt's not happening apart from the reality of Jesus coming. Jesus is a part of the Godhead, a part of the Trinity that was shown in Genesis chapter 1 and before Genesis 1 was ever created. Jesus was there. All that was created, all that's going on in Egypt is pointing to the fact of what Jesus is going to accomplish. In the beginning was Jesus. All of it was created and done for Jesus. Verse 12, but to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We are adopted as God's people, and we are protected by God just as Israel was protected by God. But those who oppose him are different. Turn your page over to John 3, 16, then 17, then 18. Do you know those? We all know 16. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is what God was doing in the world from the beginning of time. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned already. Those who oppose Jesus, they're not protected. They do not stand in the grace and the forgiveness. It's only through Jesus. And that's where John 14, 6 really has its power, right? I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We have salvation. We are adopted, grafted into the family of God because of who Jesus is. And that is the invitation to every single one of us inside this room today. Okay. We don't live in the promised land yet, we are God's children. We live in Goshen. It's a metaphor. Can you follow me? Can you connect these dots? We are followers of Jesus, but not in the promised land yet. Every one of our lives here on earth, every single one of us are impacted by the brokenness of sin. Everything around us and also everything inside of us. I love how Matt just focused on that as he was even leading us into singing today. It's just this counting on this idea of like, I love Jesus with all that I am and I'm striving to follow him, but yet my world has continued to be broken too. We lead with humility to say, everything around us is broken, but everything in me also is broken as well. We live in a world that desperately needs the hope of Jesus as well as we need to be brought into this hope daily because of the brokenness of sin in us. So how will we respond to these two truths? We need to search for the idols in our own hearts. Remember, Egypt, or Israel was in Egypt for 400 years ingrained into the worldview of Egypt, and they, though they worshipped Yahweh as king, 
they had idols that they worshipped. And we know that they did because we can jump all the way to Exodus chapter 32. And when they thought Moses was dead on the mountain, what did they do? They built a golden calf. Where did that come from? It came from Egypt. Did they take their eyes off Yahweh? I, 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 don't, I can't look into their hearts. But I'm thinking that they only did the thing that they knew how to do. They had idols. We knew God was angry with that. God was not pleased because of his interactions with Moses on the mountain about what was going on. We're the same. We live in Goshen. The world around us is leading us to value things that are not ours to value. What are idols? Idols are things that we simply just put in the place of God. God is here, and we constantly want to make us or things that we do or love or value above God. That's an idol. And God is saying, I'm showing you in Egypt, and I want you to know that I am king. I'm going to fight you for that idol. Yes, you are my people, and that's why through my grace and mercy and love, I'm going to fight for that because I'm a jealous God. We need to fight for those idols. Three things about that. There's many of us in this room, and I start talking about idols our minds go to things that we know are idols in our own lives. We're aware of this. This is not something that's foreign to the most of us. We know that our hearts battle, right? But when we put something in front of God, what do we do with that thing? I know one of my biggest idols is my wife and my family. I, I, I don't get how God can make me love my wife so passionately and so intensely, but also say I am king over her. I know it's real, but I constantly kind of make that shift back and forth. If God were to decide to take her away from me, I don't know how I'd respond. I hope that through his grace and mercy that I would be able to keep my eyes on him as king, but I don't know. I feel like I'm going to crawl and crumble. And my kids are in the same category. I love them differently. It, it's the same thing. There are idols in my life, and I know it. I'm constantly battling that. But there are other idols that we could just dive into, our own sin nature, our ingrained sin, our indwelling sins that we focus on, idols. So we all know what idols look like, but then we all have idols that God has yet to reveal to us. There are things that you worship that the world that we live in, because we're in Goshen, we're not in the, I'm not calling the USA Goshen. I'm calling the, the anywhere away from heaven Goshen. It's not American culture. If you, we're so small in thinking of it's just the American culture. It's the brokenness of the world that has allowed us to lose sight and to lose focus. There's things that we don't know yet are idols that God wants to continue to reveal one at a time or two at a time for us for a lifespan and lastly, every one of us has spent our entire lives in Goshen. Since that's the truth, idolatry is so deeply ingrained in who we are that there's this thing that, that Scripture calls progressive sanctification, that we're never going to get it right. We're never going to be perfect. We're never going to arrive until we die and stand before Jesus face to face. Praise God. Always going to be revealing idols because we always want to put something before God. On that same coin, but the other side, I want to argue that we need to continually, as we live here in Goshen, we need to continually learn how to follow Jesus in a broken world. We are followers of him 
in the middle of a world that does not recognize God as Yahweh. The difference between Israel and us, they were enslaved. We, here in the United States, we live free. That is a great gift that God has given us to be a part of the land of the free and the home of the brave. Absolutely. It is also something that we need to continually fight in our own hearts as we have freedom of speech and we can say whatever we want. We need to focus on the essentials of the things that we continue to fight for. In our freedoms, have opinions and advocate and speak and argue and debate and we can do this really well. But we need to fight for the things as God fights for the things that are absolutely essential. Those are the things that we, the hills we die on are the things that are essential to Christ being king. As we've been talking about evangelism over the past few weeks, it's important that we ask ourselves, are there ways that we have unintentionally created an us versus them mentality in our own hearts that we started off fighting to make God king in everyone's lives, but it's turned into, I want everyone to understand my idea on the non-essential things and make that right? Or do we just want Christ to be on his throne and people to see it? Has our righteous endeavors to start off with really good intentions, cause us to build walls and fortresses? Is there any place in our own hearts where we've created an unspoken us and them behavior in the world that further divides us versus them so that when we start talking about the beauty of Jesus, they don't even want to hear it anymore? I look at the Josephs, and I look at the Daniels in Scripture who stood in the palace of pagan kings. They lived in the palace of pagan kings. They sought to find favor with these kings until the time was right for them to speak up. So when they did speak up, they had the ear of the one that did not follow God as Yahweh God, and their voice was heard, sometimes followed, sometimes fought against. It wasn't easy, and it wasn't simple, but I look at their example, and I'm like, man, how have we entered into our world of Goshen in a way that is going to have a great impact? They fought for what's important. They learned to love Yahweh in a culture that wasn't their home. But more importantly, when it was time to be heard, they were heard. Then I jump to the New Testament, and I see Jesus eating with sinners, in the houses of sinners where the Pharisees, the religious ones, looked at him and wanted to kill him for it. How are we building relationships with those who don't know Jesus? And are we putting the right thing on display? Are you putting you and your ideals on display? Or are you putting the truth of a big, great God through Jesus Christ on display? One example, and, and I'll close with this example, is... Many of us are aware that um, there was a much debate, debated plan that was voted on this past week in our Hillsborough School District. I'm not choosing to talk about the details of it, and I'm choosing to not get political. 
not because I'm unaware or I don't have any opinions, what I want to state and what I want to make super clear is the facts of this. This comprehensive sexuality education plan will be part of the curriculum for Hillsborough school districts moving forward. How do we, as a Daniel and as a Joseph, how do we carefully and prayerfully move forward? Our responsibility, living in Goshen, is to, most importantly, A, know who Yahweh God is, and we surrender to who He is. And we surrender to who Jesus is, and we embed our lives around that truth. And we don't let anyone else take that truth away from who Jesus is in us. And then we need to teach that to our children. If you have children here, it is our responsibility, not the churches, not the schools, not this, not that. It is our responsibilities as families to raise our children up to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Just Jesus. Parents, how do we have opinions that don't further divide us versus them, but leaves room for good, Jesus-centered conversation that the Holy Spirit can be using. We live in a free country, and this free country is filled with sinners. And we take the Apostle Paul's approach to that, of who I am the worst. We need to make space for good conversations real Jesus-loving people have a different opinion about this topic than other Jesus-loving Christians. And here's the thing, we're all part of the same family. God's not opposed to either one. We just need to make it about Jesus and have good conversations along the way. And there are people who don't know Jesus who have really strong opinions on both sides of that argument too. Are we leading people to the Jesus by our leading people to Jesus by our actions or are we driving them away? We need to realize that is our reality. We are aliens here. We are exiles. This is not our home. It is our responsibility to know that there is no other god than Yahweh God. We're to know him through his son, Jesus. Teach our kids who Jesus is in all their situations. And as exiles, we need to foster situations. When we talk about Jesus, we are heard. The Holy Spirit does the rest. Are we loving him in everything we say and everything we do? I want to pray for us, invite the worship team to lead us. God, thank you so much for making yourself extremely known. Not only do you separate yourself from every other God, you are intentionally showing us who you are as completely powerful and strong and mighty and someone who loves us so intensely that you pursue us, you leave heaven and pursue us so that we can have relationship with you and that your name will not be thwarted in eternity. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Until that day comes, I want to be your, your faithful servant who just focuses on loving you and having discipleship conversations with my fellow brothers and sisters, no matter where we land. 
so that the world around us can see how we love one another and know that you are king. May we do that and do it well. Lead us to worship to you in song as we continue. In Jesus' name we pray.